Hello, everyone, and welcome to Disgruntled Dan's Pharmacy Podcast. Welcome to episode number three of Disgruntled Dan's Pharmacy Podcast. My name is Dr. Dan Burton. I'm a clinical pharmacist and founder of Healthcare Evolution based out of Calgary, Alberta. If you haven't already seen and heard about the, some of the exciting updates, Disgruntled Dan's Pharmacy Podcast is now available through iTunes. And if you haven't already done so, I encourage you to subscribe to my podcast through my website, healthcareevolve.ca. And you can then receive each new episode and update directly to your email. So today, I want to chat with you about the new GLP-1 kit on the block, Ozempic or Semaglutide. Semaglutide is a new glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonist that was recently approved here in Canada and is manufactured by Nova Nordis. Now, we currently have a number of GLP-1s on the market, but this class of medication has been receiving a lot more attention lately, not only because liraglutide or Victoza was shown to provide cardiovascular benefit in diabetics, but also because liraglutide is becoming a mainstay treatment in the management of obesity under the trade name Saxenda. Now, semaglutide currently only has the one indication, and that is for diabetes, but I have no doubt that Nova will be pushing to gain this in the weight loss indication in the near future. Now, before we dive into the evidence, I just wanted to take a step back and provide a brief overview on the mechanism of action for GLP-1. Glucagon-like peptide 1 is released from the L cells of the small intestine in response to food. It exerts its main effect by stimulating glucose-dependent insulin release from the pancreatic islet cells, and it's been shown to slow gastric emptying, inhibit inappropriate post-meal glucagon release, and reduce food intake. Now, the action of slowing gastric emptying and activity in the appetite centers of the brain are the main aspects that help or can contribute to weight loss. Now for some evidence. The SUSTAIN-6 trial by Marso Etiol was the cardiovascular safety outcome trial for semaglutide. This trial used a non-inferiority design. So what does that mean? Well, to give you a brief overview, non-inferiority trials endeavor to establish that an experimental treatment is neither better nor worse than the current standard therapy. We use this type of trials when it might be unethical to leave a patient untreated, and we, in that case, we need an active treatment as control to be used instead of placebo. But overall, we just want to ensure that the experimental treatment is not much worse than standard treatment by some small pre-specified amount. This amount is called the non-inferiority margin. Now, non-inferiority margins are a bit tricky, and they're still under quite a bit of debate, as there really is no universal method in place to really determine how they are calculated. Now, the FDA does provide some guidance, and they state in order to determine your non-inferiority margin, you must consider the smallest plausible benefit achieved by the current existing standard therapy. This is done by looking at the results of trials completed with the standard therapy against previous best care or placebo. We then need to examine the confidence interval around the point estimates from those studies, and in particular, we look at the boundary of the confidence interval nearest to no effect in order to determine our non-inferiority margin. In the non-inferiority trial, if the difference between the new drug and the active comparator does not exceed this pre-specified margin, non-inferiority can be then concluded. So the SUSTAIN-6 was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled parallel group trial. Patients were randomized in a one-to-one-to-one-to-one fashion to receive 0.5 or 1 milligram once weekly of sub-Q semaglutide or a volume-matched placebo. 
The patients that were included in the study were, of course, type 2 diabetics with a hemoglobin A1c greater than 7%. Key inclusion criteria included patients that were 50 years of age or older and had established cardiovascular disease, chronic heart failure, or chronic kidney disease that was stage 3 or higher. They also included patients that were 60 years of age and older, but had at least one cardiovascular risk factor. So that means patients in this study were both primary and secondary prevention. Now, key exclusion criteria included patients treated with a DPP-4 within 30 days or with a GLP-1 receptor agonist or insulin other than basal or pre-mixed insulin within 90 days before screening. So what were they looking for? Well, the primary outcome was the standard MACE composite outcome or major adverse coronary events outcome, which included the first occurrence of death from cardiovascular causes, non-fatal MI or non-fatal stroke. Secondary outcomes, well, they looked at an expanded composite cardiovascular outcome, which, was, which included the first occurrence of death from cardiovascular causes, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, revascularization, and hospitalization for unstable angina or heart failure. The second secondary outcome they looked at was an additional composite outcome for death from all causes, non-fatal MI, or non-fatal stroke. And for a few of the final, final details here, the authors set their non-inferiority margin to be 1.80, which was calculated based on the recommendations from the FDA guidelines. Their analysis of the results used an intention-to-treat principle, which means that every single patient randomized at the outset of the trial was included in the final analysis, regardless if they dropped out or were non-compliant with treatment. So for their results, well, they enrolled and randomized a total of 3,291 patients. Their follow-up was just barely complete at 2.1 years, with approximately 20% of patients overall discontinuing prematurely, and discontinuation occurred more frequently in the semaglutide group. Generally, the patients were similar across the groups. Average A1C was 8.7%, and 17% of the patients were actually of primary prevention. So for the primary outcome, it was found that 6.6% of patients in the semaglutide groups and 8.9% in the placebo group experienced an event. This gave a calculated hazard ratio of 0.74 with a 95% confidence interval of 0.58 to 0.95. Now, I always love the confidence intervals from these cardiovascular outcome trials with diabetes medications because if you look at the upper end of that confidence interval, which was 0.95, so what that kind of tells us is that if semaglutide has a bad day, it's only slightly better than placebo. But I digress. The confidence interval did, did not cross over one, and therefore the results are significant. Now for a few other numbers, the relative risk reduction was 26%. The absolute risk reduction was calculated to be 2.3%, which equated to a number needed to treat a 43 over 2.1 years. And on further analysis, the results of that primary outcome were primarily driven by a significant decrease in non-fatal stroke and a non-significant decrease in non-fatal MI. There was actually no difference between the two groups with respect to cardiovascular death. For the secondary outcomes, the expanded and all-cause death composite outcomes were also shown to be statistically significant. Again, the results were once again primarily driven by a decrease in non-fatal stroke in the semaglutide group. Now for individual outcomes, non-fatal stroke was one of the only ones that was shown to be statistically significant when comparing the semaglutide group to the placebo group. The number of patients 
that experienced a non-fatal stroke was 1.6% versus 2.7% in the semaglutide versus placebo group, respectively. This gave a hazard ratio of 0.61 with a 95% confidence interval of 0.38 to 0.99. Again, look at that confidence interval for non-fatal stroke. It was just barely shown to be significant, but I digress again. Now, for more patient-friendly numbers, the relative risk reduction was 39%, and the absolute risk reduction was 1.03%, with a number needed to treat of 97 over 2.1 years. So this was an individual outcome. Number needed to treat of 97 does not look quite as good as a number needed to treat of 43 when we compare to um, the maze outcome, but still not too bad of a result. Now, there were some very interesting results with respect to the microvascular outcomes. So first off, there was a significant increased risk of retinopathies in the semaglutide group. 3% of patients in the semaglutide group versus 1.8% of patients in the placebo group. This gave us an absolute risk increase of 1.28% and a number needed to harm of 78 over 2.1 years. Now of the patients that did experience some kind of retinopathy complication during the study, 83.5% of those ones had a pre-existing retinopathy at baseline. So there's a couple theories as to why this could have occurred, and it may be due to a rapid drop in A1C. So this has been noted in previous literature with type 1 diabetics and insulin. But we really can't discount a direct effect from semaglutide at this point in time, considering the number of retinopathies that was seen in this trial is higher than what has been seen in other literature with GLP-1s. On the flip side, though, semaglutide appeared to actually provide a benefit with respect to the kidneys. It reduced the risk of new or worsening nephropathy with 3.8% versus 6.1% in the semaglutide and placebo group, respectively. This gave us an absolute risk reduction of 2.3% and a number needed to treat of 43 over 2.1 years. So kind of interesting. Now finally, the adverse effects. So as is common with GLP-1s and semaglutide is no different, we saw a lot of GI disorders being reported when compared to placebo. In particular, there was diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting. Patients were more likely to discontinue semaglutide due to adverse effects compared to placebo, but there was no increased risk of pancreatitis or hypoglycemic episodes between the two groups. Some other outcomes that the trial looked at, um, semaglutide reduced A1C by 1.1% and 1.4% in the 0.5 milligram and 1 milligram groups respectively. This is similar to what has been seen in other trials with semaglutide compared to placebo. And with respect to weight loss, semaglutide resulted in a 3.6 kilo and a 4.9 kilo weight loss in the 0.5 milligram and 1 milligram groups, respectively. So definitely a possibility as a future medication for obesity. Now time for my short appraisal. So overall, it was an okay study, but a few of the concerns that I do have. Number one. The blinding, allocation, concealment, and randomization procedures were not really addressed. I mean, it is assumed, but I do like to see a statement that directly addresses it, and if there is no statement, or maybe it's hidden away in some appendix or something like that, it kind of makes me think that the authors might be trying to avoid discussing it. Maybe. Number two, Novo Nordisk was heavily involved in trial design, site monitoring, data collection, and data analysis. Now, I have ranted about this before, and we need these drug companies as they're the ones that have the vested interest and the capital in order to make these studies possible, but it's always nice when they try to take a step back and bring in as much independent consult consultations rather than doing it all in-house. Number three, they used an intention-to-treat analysis for their results. 
Now, some may disagree with me, but I like to see a per-protocol analysis, as I believe it is better to be used in a non-inferiority trial. And better yet, I think both analyses should really be done in, in reality. So here's an example from the JAMA guideline. Imagine a non-inferiority trial where many of the patients in the standard treatment group do not adhere to treatment. If we use an intention-to-treat approach, inclusion of these non-adherent patients may result in a substantial underestimation of the benefit of the standard treatment and thus cause a misleading inference of non-inferiority in comparison with the experimental treatment. Now, vice versa can also be said in the experimental treatment arm if a whole bunch of patients in that arm drop out, but um, we can alleviate some of these concerns with a per-protocol analysis and only those patients that complete the study, the full study protocol, will be then included in the final analysis. Now, number four, they did include primary prevention patients within the study. Not really enough to have any kind of significant power to allow us to draw any solid conclusions about semaglutide in primary prevention, but it may lead to a study being completed in the future with respect to semaglutide and primary prevention. Now, my issue with primary prevention patients being included is that it can dilute the results or the benefit of the drug with respect to secondary prevention. Now, interestingly, the authors of the study were still able to show a statistically significant benefit in their primary outcome with these primary prevention patients included, but would the result have been even better if it was just secondary prevention? Number five, they used composite endpoints. Now, I know the MACE outcome is quite common within the literature, particularly when it comes to non-inferiority trials, but my problem with composite endpoints is there's always one or two individual outcomes that are actually driving the results. And I mean, in reality, if we add enough non-significant results together, we're hoping to eventually see some kind of significant result. And that just never really sits well with me. I like to see the individual outcomes. So in the case of semaglutide, I can say that semaglutide may reduce your risk of non-fatal stroke, revascularization, and or new or worsening nephropathy. I can't say it does reduce the risk of MI or cardiovascular deaths because those individual outcomes were non-significant. Yes, when we combined the MACE outcomes all together, we did get significance, but not the individual ones. Now, I know some people will say otherwise, but that is again one of my many disgruntledisms. Now, number six, this really wasn't an issue with the study. It's kind of one thing that I do appreciate about it is that the authors did not try to go in state superiority. Far too often do non-inferiority trials try to say, yes, we achieved superiority compared to the active comparator. But non-inferiority trials are not designed or powered for that. If you want to demonstrate superiority, then do a superiority trial. Do not try to piggyback on a non-inferiority trial. So the authors of this paper appropriately stayed within the parameters and said that semaglutide is non-inferior to standard treatment. So in conclusion, this is a reasonably completed trial. There was really no major red flags that I saw poking out at me. And now it's time for some of disgruntled Dan's conclusions. Number one, semaglutide reduces the risk of non-fatal stroke, number needed to treat of 97 for 2.1 years, and it reduces your risk of new or worsening nephropathy, number needed to treat of 43 over 2.1 years, and as well, it also reduced the risk of revascularization. Yes, there was a reduction in the composite MACE outcomes, but this was primarily driven by the results from non-fatal strokes. Number two, use with caution in patients that currently have retinopathies. Semaglutide may worsen and or cause retinopathies, and the exact cause really isn't known at this point in time. Number three, it's one's weekly dosing. I mean, 
as the way it goes, that's pretty darn convenient for the patient if they can get all of these benefits by just giving themselves one poke a week. Number four, start low and go slow. It is a once weekly injection, so it has a long half-life. Therefore, it's recommended that you start at 0.25 milligrams times four weeks, then increase to 0.5 milligrams to times four weeks, and then increase to the max dosage of one milligram once weekly if necessary, if their A1C is not controlled at the lower levels. And this is all to avoid any kind of those GI side effects and other side effects that the drug may cause. So start low, go slow. Number five, the cost right now is quite, quite high. We're looking at approximately $700 for a four to six week supply without any kind of insurance. And there really isn't a lot of companies out there that are really looking at it right now. I'm sure that's gonna change very quickly. But as for now, there is some patient programs um, that Novo Nordisk is offering in order to reduce the cost of the medication. So number six, it's a new drug. We really don't have a lot of experience with it. I want to be cautiously optimistic, but in my practice, I'm generally going to choose other options that I do have a little bit more experience with and that we do have a little bit more of that real world data with before I jump to this medication. But in reality, it's going to come down to that patient that is sitting in front of you and the most important thing to do is to be patient-centered. Well, that is all for now, folks. I hope you all enjoyed the program. And remember, subscribe through my website, healthcareevolve.ca, in order to receive each episode of Disgruntled Dan's Pharmacy Podcast directly into your inbox. And also check us out on iTunes. We're now posted up there as well. As always, if there's any questions, concerns, commentary, would love to hear from you. Once again, you can contact me through my website. And thank you for listening.